always wanted to know who the best player was on tour simply because I wanted to actually work as hard. And then I ran into a, a little guy by the name of George Knudsen out of Canada. And I watched him hit the golf ball. I watched him with the white stand, making the club back way inside, releasing the club. One of the greatest ball strikers I'd ever seen. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the McKellar Golf Podcast. I always start with a bit of selling. Uh, so I'm going to start differently this week, uh, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Shackler, my co-host. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well, Lawrence. Uh, it's going to be a fun show today. Right, I, hold on to your hat here. I, I always go on about McKellar Magazine, but this week I'm going to go on about Jeff's uh, newsletter, The Quadrilateral. Uh, we're coming into what you might call golf's off-season, um, but there is so much going on, and uh, I, well, as a subscriber, a long-time subscriber, um, I uh, really look forward to the quadrilateral um, at this time of the year. Uh, anyway, uh, go to Substack. Jeff's got a, a – how, how often does it come out? But it seems it comes out at least twice a week, Jeff. Yeah, we're twice a week this time of year. It could be a little yeah. bit more depending on news events. And, uh, I mean, I didn't break into people's email boxes today with news that Pinehurst had added the 2047 U.S. Open to its <laughs> list of championships. I'm going to save that one for the news and notes this week. I uh, didn't need to break in on that. Oh. Hang on. So, what's left between now and twenty fifty? Is, uh, is thirty eight still open? After a very stiff beverage tonight, I'm going to look and look at the list and say, "Oh, okay, we've still got three dates open between now and and the time that Niles on the Champions Tour." There you go. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, it's so embarrassing that you keep doing this stuff. It's just weird. Anyway, anyway, there you uh, go. Uh, the quadrilateral is on Substack. Uh, Jeff's. Uh, right. uh, so that on. sounded terrible. I'm very excited about the one that's going out, which will be out when people get this podcast. Right. I'm, okay. I'm revisiting the PGA of America's decision uh, not to go global in the Olympic years and uh, just throwing out a proposal as to how it would have worked next year. And, and, and it's just a nice excuse to talk about Royal Melbourne and what a great PGA championship it would be. And, 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 and a lot has changed since they, they explored that topic. So I'm noting, I'm, 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 you know, it's just one of those things. It's the joys, the joy of doing a newsletter, Lawrence, is that I can do something like this. If I pitched this to the editors I would have worked with, they'd say no. The, uh, anyway, the quadrilateral, it's on Substack, subscribe now. Uh, and while you're at, at it, go to mckellarmagazine.com and buy a copy of McKellar Magazine. Uh, I have to say, uh, Jeff, uh, I have been on here threatening, bullying people for the last few weeks, and it seems to, Seems to be working. Um, so we're well underway with uh, issue number eight. Um, our, uh, oh, and it's just that. Come on, it's just that time of year where it's so nice. You know, the days are shorter. Uh, that's not nice, but but the shorter days to have something quality to read. It's it's quite uh, quite ideal for that. I wasn't going to say curl up with the fireplace going because I live in L.A. and we don't really do that kind of thing. But we still we still sit and read in McKellar at the beach, which I just did, and it's fantastic. Okay, right, that's enough. McKellarMagazine.com. Uh, uh, we are uh, going to crack on with this. It's a really, uh, as you say, great fun show today. We have a guest, a friend of the pod, uh, Mr. Alan Shipnell, author of uh, Live and Let Die, um, the book about the quotes-unquote war between um, the Live Golf and the PGA Tour. It's a, a brilliant book. Uh, anyway, we will be talking to Alan about that uh, after we quickly run through the week's events in golf for the, the week past and the week ahead. The main event for me, uh, Jeff, actually you brought to my attention, 
is the uh, Asia Pacific Amateur Championship is at the aforementioned Royal Melbourne. It starts uh, tomorrow night at US time. Can't wait. How about you? Yeah, for us on the West Coast, it's pretty special. We get to watch uh, before uh, it, it gets past our bedtime. And uh, we haven't seen it, what, I guess since the President's Cup. Um, so I've heard uh, it, it's in fine form and uh, we have a solid field and we have spots of the Masters and the Open Championship and the Amateur on the line. And and uh, we have people in green coats uh, milling about the grounds. Uh, uh, and hopefully when Mike Clayton's caddying, he'll be able to bark out some roll back the ball comments to uh, to the not just the green coats. There will be navy blue, I'm sure, as well from uh, the RNA. The uh, who's Clayton caddying, caddying for? You know, uh, Elvis uh, Smiley. Oh, no, no, Elvis is a Elvis is lo- is pro. No. He's long. Yeah, he is. Sorry, mate. He turned uh, pro. The, yeah, of course he did. A couple oh, of years ago. Uh, uh, well, anyway, I'm, I'm Who sure. Who's uh, caddying for? Uh, uh, oh, anyway, uh, uh, I'll figure anyway, it out. I'll figure it yeah. out before the end of the show. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, don't worry about that. So we'll keep an eye out for for Clates, uh, uh, you know, Which uh, is it a composite course, Jeff, or is it yeah. the east or west? Yeah, oh, is it composite. It is. It's a little bit oh. different than the President's Cup, though, which has uh, got me a little confused. Uh, but anyway, we'll we'll have four days to figure it out. Um, something's a little bit different than than I recall from the President's Cup. So I have to figure out which hole they've taken out. I'm I'm fearful they've taken out what they played as the first hole in the President's Cup. Which is the third hole on the West Course, I believe. Um, so I'm, I, but don't I, hold me to that. But that's the way, it, based on the map on the website, that's what I'm detecting, and that's that's just the most incredible match play hole I've ever seen. Uh, so, oh well. But this is struggle. The, play. the uh, yeah, it's been God uh, ten months since I was at Royal Melbourne. I had a real treat. Uh, it was a practice round. Uh, for the uh, Sunbelt, uh, Sunbelt Invitational, uh, and Mike Clayton t- w- talked to me around uh, Royal Melbourne. It was a, quite the most enjoyable four hours I've ever spent on a golf course, explaining to me what makes it uh, such a genius golf course. It's also a, a, just a stunning walk. Um, yeah, and hopefully uh, the, the he's the canning Jack- for Lucas, by the way. So I should have Lucas I should have known he's right. a design associate. So. They should just put a microphone on those two. Unfortunately, Clates' language would probably. <laughs> God, wouldn't that be a great feed, though, just to hear them talking about the course? And oh. that would be. Uh, but yeah, right. I don't think Clates could uh, could get through. Oh, it. It, put it behind a wall and say it could. There could be some graphic language, and uh, everybody will be fine. Uh, the uh, it makes you think, though. Um, you know, you talk. You talk about your newsletter this week. Wouldn't it be just be great to have a major championship on that golf course? I mean, it just oh. it shone so brilliantly at the President's Cup. Of course, both Tiger times. Being, both times, uh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah, you explain to me then, as a layperson, Jeff. Give me a give me a minute or thirty seconds on the genius of uh, Royal Melbourne. You know, it's not the most thrilling piece of land you've ever seen. There's nothing that special about it in terms of the undulations and the contours. Uh, but the sandy soil, the ingenious design, the ingenious uh, maintenance uh, that's been really a part of it from uh, going back to Claude Crockford way, way, way back. It's just always been a place that's been obsessed with firm and fast. And it's just it's the rare place where the greens are super fast and you 
you like that about the design that it that it it the the greens are so well done that it actually heightens everything and improves everything usually fast greens tend to spoil a lot of the best things i think people lose sight of that you lose all these whole locations and you lose different you you put players more uh, i guess kind of uh in a in a sort of a, a reserve mode and and at royal melbourne they they still have that but it does allow you these moments to to be aggressive and and that's why in match play it's particularly i mean no hole is ever over until uh it is over <laughs> yeah a lot can happen there and it would yeah. be it would be really fun to watch it in stroke play uh and and in february when they would have a pga most likely it would it, it's at its peak so we're not even seeing it you know we're in springtime right now yeah um so it may it's not going to be nearly as firm and fast as it would be in in february the uh, I wonder if uh, the guys from Augusta National, when they go and they look at the color, I mean, yeah, right, it's springtime in Melbourne, and they look at yeah. the color of uh, of Royal Melbourne and they just wonder what they're doing with their own golf course. Didn't I read I a few? You years? know what? I, I wouldn't even. It's not even the color. I just wish they would. I wish they would get rid of the the, the mowing the fairways to the tees and get the ball running that way again. Uh, it's always going to be green at Augusta. We're never going to convince them to be and it's overseeded with rye so there's really no option but but to get that ball running into the trouble and again that at royal melbourne that is such a big part of it that seemingly wide landing areas and there's some sharp bending holes and if you blow it through the fairway you're you're really in trouble and the angles the, the dreaded angles word they mean so much there and that that's what i'd love for them to see to, to absorb but who knows yeah. maybe they some here i Breaking news, uh, somebody just sent me a, uh, a link uh, with a vomit emoji. Uh, Annika Sorenstam has been named a member of Augusta National yeah. Golf. Uh, so there you go. Uh, you too can become a member of uh, Augusta National if you go uh, join the insurrectionist president the day after he tries to overthrow. Well, uh, let's yeah, let's well. not forget peddling um, um, quack theories on how to cure uh, COVID and other fun stuff too. Yeah. Anyway, uh, All now me. deleted and... Uh, maybe somewhere in the Twitter caches. The um, anyway, there you go. Um, so I'll be looking forward to that. You'll be looking forward to that. Anybody who no, loves golf, um, yeah, it's it'll be on. It's usually on ESPN. ESPN, and I'll I'll have the full listing in in the uh, newsletter. But yeah, ESPN is is putting it, I believe, on a slight delay. So d I think we're looking at a half hour. So don't be too upset if the scores on the website don't quite match. It's um. It's. A, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but I did see that note on the official website. But they are, yeah, they're going to have it all on, and uh, I think they even have a replay in there, as I recall. Uh, they do have a highlight show on Sunday, but um, they'll be coming on at eight o'clock Pacific for the final round on uh, Saturday night for us. And some, uh, um, some great They are going live. They just are going to have rebroadcasts on ESPN two live on ESPN plus rebroadcasts on uh, ESPN2 for, for uh, usually I don't know if Dottie will be there. I, I do remember Dottie in years past. She is um, not doing it this year. Oh, I right, did okay, see an right. announcer list. She oh. is not there. Rich Lerner is the uh, the host. Oh, he's great. Um, uh, uh, and for so some great players, uh, Jeff, Kazuma Kabori will win it. I'm confident mm. predicting that. He's just off. Uh, he won the individual at Eisenhower at the weekend. Um, in Abu Dhabi, uh, which was won by uh, United States, Nick Dunlap. See if I can. This is how sad I am. I can probably name the U.S. Uh, Eisner uh, USA Eisner Trophy team. 
Well, I think it was David Ford, Gordon Sargent, and Nick Dunlap. Uh, so there you go. Um, three guys have probably seen the PGA Tour before too long. I saw or that. Uh, Sar- or live. Yeah, or live. I saw that Sargent uh, officially won his, uh, when he hit his first tee shot at the Eisenhower, he officially uh, got his uh, PGA Tour card. Oh. Um, that will be, uh, that will be, I don't think he has to take it up straight away. It'll no, be interesting he can delay it. Uh, he could come back for his senior year and it's still there for him. But, but Jay Monahan, did you see, uh, ma- managed to just carve away a few minutes from sifting through all the bids to issue a, uh, a uh, quote, welcoming him to the PGA Tour. I mean, they are so desperate. Uh, yeah, again, he's a love, he's a lovely young man, a wonderful player, a huge talent, but, um, uh, you know the this this the the great white hope vibes are just way too strong right now and and they're gonna do the the usual build up and build up and and overhype and over obsess that this is the next tiger or something and it's like oh just stop just stop okay let him get out there let him have a career and and we'll talk gosh they can't the, help um, anyway I, I i again i confidently predict he will stay at vanderbilt get his degree get his degree in communications you think he will and- Oh, I'd really do, yeah. I, I think. Why is that? Yeah. Well, the, uh, I do, I do have a little bit. Of, I, I do have a no, no. The NIL in golf is way overblown, and uh, college golf is way no, overblown. I think. Yeah. I think in uh, his case, uh, I, I would disagree. <laughs> uh, the uh, the um, well, the size of it is way overblown. No, I, I do have a, a tiny little bit of inside information, and, and I suspect that uh, he will stay. I think there's a realization in the, well, I don't know for sure, but. After his performance at the Masters last year, when his uh, short game was uh, pretty much exposed, I think he probably realizes that a couple of years more a college golf seasoning Boy, will, that... will tighten up the short game and get him re- get him ready for the pros. I'm sure he'll do re- really, really well. He played fairly um, nicely at LA North, though. So I, really I, I, I just, I, just I, I look at his game, and I, I think he'd be just fine turning pro, but he also is another player I look at. I go, wow, one, one more year of college, enjoy it. Uh, yeah. you've got your NIL thing, get stronger physically, ease into life more. And I think he'll, I think he'd be uh, happier, but he has a pretty good setup there at Vanderbilt to, uh, to keep yeah. improving, um, and, and get to his ultimate goals. But, um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, the other kid uh, I'll be watching out for is another Australian is, uh, Jeffrey Guan. Um, okay. actually, uh, Caddy, uh, walked in the group with him last year at the Sandbelt. A really smashing kid. Uh, he, he's um, uh, again really young. God, they're all really young, Jeff. Anyway, we'll be watching for for Jeff, and we'll be we'll, we'll obviously looking out for Lucas. Good luck, Lucas, if you're listening to this. Uh, other uh, stuff on the agenda, uh, not really that much, which is why we're keeping this um, this um, this segment pretty short this week. Uh, but, uh, any developments in the framework agreement, Jeff? Have you have you come across anything? Oh, you, you know, it's you- just. Stuff popping up here and there that that seems to continue to suggest that uh, we're headed for a collision course of <laughs> of of uh, not a deal with Saudi Arabia and um, and a deal somewhere else and valuations and and all those wonderful things that have nothing to do with uh, improving the the quality of their their uh, product that is uh, that needs improving. Um, from my end, uh, again, just more bubbling under uh, on companies that are that are interest that are interested. Um, I did see, I see you forwarded it to me. There's a very good profile of Aria Manuel in the Hollywood Reporter over the last week or so. 
in which the his uh, his uh, fascination with the PGA Tour was mentioned. It lo- seems that he's looking for about twenty five million a year return on his ten percent investment in the PGA Tour. Uh, so he suggests to me that he's probably that they probably bid around two two hundred million, two hundred and fifty million uh, for ten percent, which suggests a valuation of uh, two billion, two point five billion for the PGA Tour. Do you think that's uh, that seems a bit light? I mean, that wouldn't even buy you half an NFL franchise these days. Oh, I, dis- I disagree. I think we discussed this, and and I think we'll probably also chat about this with Alan Shipnook. But but this, I just continue to not understand what uh, Nuco entails. It's it's the gambling, it's the data. You know, renting shot link to the USGA. It's um, the TPC network. It's uh, it, it's just not anything related to the tournaments, unless they decide to fold the nonprofit and create one for profit entity. But so far, Jay Monian's been adamant about the, the nonprofit when we've heard him talk, uh, the nonprofit uh, not going away. So I, I just want to know, I, it sounds to me actually like the right amount because I just don't understand what they're getting uh, unless the, the, well, we know they're very bullish on the upside of the betting uh, revenues. And so I guess that would be, a big part of this is is the way they're keeping the betting separate from the nonprofit. Um, the other, uh, hearing a bit of uh, gossip here and there that one of the bids um, would be for a portion of the PG Tour schedule, which might be devoted to uh, different types of formats, uh, very limited fields. Uh, so we'll see if that uh, that transpires. Uh, anyway, lot, lots going on. I think the main fascination, certainly for me, is w- will the future of the PGA Tour involve uh, any kind of accommodation with the PIF? Uh, if the answer is yes, then peace in our time. If the answer is no, my goodness, the gloves could be off in yeah. in spades. Uh, lots of um, th- this comes and goes, Jeff. This uh, the rumor mill on players. I did see that uh, our old friend Brandel Chambly. Uh, said he mentioned that he was worried about John Ram the other day. Uh, that kind of changed the stuff that we've been mm. seeing over the. Um, well, what do you think about that? I did. I, I noticed you 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 touched on it in your newsletter at, at the beginning of the week. Uh, anything strike you? I, I mean, Brando. I'm guessing he wouldn't be saying that kind of stuff without knowing something. Or hearing something. Uh, sure, of hearing it. Yeah, and and knowing who his agent is, and he's with the same firm as as Phil Mickelson, and you've got Phil very bullish down there in Miami at the uh, live finale, which was was just just truly agonizing if you tried to watch it uh, <laughs> between the the music in the background. Some of the announcing, and you actually oh, you, wanted you actually wanted commercial breaks, <laughs> just to, <laughs> and it was on for three hundred and fifty minutes because I saw they they averaged one hundred fifty thousand, which is actually a decent audience on Sunday. They did not draw a rating on Saturday. This is a real developing story in the United States, Lawrence. That 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 Americans are are really watching a lot of college football, and now golf can't even get a rating on Saturdays, and it can on Sundays, which is totally bizarre with the NFL going. But yeah, the way Bo, the way Phil was so bullish in multiple, he gave multiple interviews. It seemed or passing. Well, I'm not going to say interviews. That I'm getting. I'm going to go with more like passing comments to writers chasing after him uh but good for them and um i think that when you he he's not throwing that out there if he isn't legitimately getting some some uh 
some sense that that there are going to be players and and there's going to be turnover and it's just funny you you'd mentioned the rumor of this other tour idea yeah the, the, the live live is probably going to have as much turnover as is is the PGA tour at the at the rate the tour is going out with these limited fields and uh signature events and and it's just ironic that they they got shot down on the world rankings and and yet the tours going in these directions towards the things that the official world ranking said are uh, bad so that's another thing to watch that's a a very very good point uh, we will wrap this up jeff um just uh, mopping up um i saw that well obviously morikawa one as well that was quite good fun good to see him back playing great i, I see him did wrong. you watch any of it I did. That's oh, how sad I am. Okay. Yeah. Oh, actually, before I, I should mention of the of the. Zuzzle. I tried. I watched on the Wednesday night. It was uh, late. Bella was on. Uh, does it cheapen our brand as a kind of cerebral po- golf podcast if we mention the uh, the names that are being bandied around in the rumor mill, or should we just leave that for people? Yeah, I think we'll it? leave it. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I, and I, I think most of them are obvious anyway. We know who's who's more about the money than than the majors and. I think that became apparent recently, and uh, I, I can't believe you've buried the lead that that uh, Rory and Joe Lacava patched things up Sunday <laughs> at the Ryder Cup. I can't believe you you didn't mention that, um, but that 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 has been resolved. Then, of course, Xander Schauffele blamed the media for overhyping his dad's yeah. uh, incendiary remarks to about nine outlets. Uh, and yeah. there were, I think, it, no, not nine, but it was at least four. And I know of two others that didn't even bother to write articles because they had they had the same quotes when he was rambling on, and they just, uh, you know, we're busy with the matches. So the Ryder yeah. Cup just keeps on giving. Okay, um, yeah, it'll be interesting. The next, I guess, the next one will be the announcement of the captains. I, I, I guess that we that the hanger hang around nah, for a little while before be we do while. that. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Okay, right. We uh, Any other business, Jeff, before we move on to our friend of the pod? I think we're probably done with all that. There's no, a- I think it's uh, it's exciting to get to talk to Alan Chipnuck today, and, and I know you really enjoyed the book. And I think you and I both were not sure what we'd, we'd get, and, and I think he's put together a, a sensational read on something. Even though we've lived it and experienced it over the last couple of years, it's just great to have somebody put it all in in one uh, narrative and do it very succinctly and, and, and in entertaining uh, fashion and all the things that Alan does so well. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I was hoping it was going to be terrible because shit not kind of bugs me. Yeah. Uh, Live and Let Die by Alan Shipnock. Uh, Alan, uh, we're going to have a chat to Alan about his book, uh, maybe try and have a go at him about uh, journalistic ethics. Uh, he is a, uh, when those kind of things are thrown around, he's, his name always seems to come up. We'll talk to him about that. But mostly we will uh, talk to him about his book, Live and Let Die. Anyway, uh, good to talk to you, Jeff. I will talk to you next week. So, um, And I guess then we'll hand over to a friend of the pod, Mr. Alan Shipnut. Okay, uh, guest of the pod this week, or friend of the pod, I should really say, is the uh, one of the, I don't know what to say, best, I think we'll start with best, um, uh, most controversial, most divisive uh, golf writers of certainly uh, our generation, Jeff, uh, you, you'd agree with that, wouldn't you, uh, Mr. Alan Shipnuck? Divisive? That's not the first word I think of when I think of Alan. That's well, I a said, little, I said, that's a more I recent. Best. Oh, best. I yes. said best. <clears throat> yes, yes, yes. I heard device. Uh, anyway, that was all. I was just yeah. ready to defend him. 
Right. Uh, anyway, uh, Alan Shetnock, how you doing, Alan? Um, I'm doing great. I'm I'm looking forward to being here. I get a little chin music right off the bat. I mean, that's like you know, 97 mile an hour fastball. I just I just settled into the batter's box. Jeez, I haven't even scratched myself. But let's go. Well, at best, I mean, I did say best. Anyway, <laughs> Alan, we got you on. Weird. I think we're the 47th podcast you've been on uh, to talk about your new book. Uh, Live and Let Die, uh, the story of, well, I don't know what this, can't remember what the subtitle is, but it's basically the story of the PGA Tour and its uh, uh, war, I think, I don't think, well, in the, co- the context of golf, certainly a war uh, with uh, Live Golf. Uh, just off the bat, Alan, um, I, I'll let Jess speak uh, in a second, but I, I thought the book was brilliant. I thought it was a, a really gripping read, really, really well constructed, really, really well written, uh, brilliantly reported. I did think I would have some issues about anonymous quotes, but really, I mean, there are a few in the book, but really, you know, justified. Uh, and by the way, I really liked at the end uh, uh, crediting all your sources. Really, I thought that was a, a really a lot. A lot of writers uh, don't do that, and I thought uh, you did a great job of that. So, um, you've obviously used a lot of different sources, but they all get credited. So, congrats on that, uh, Jeff. What did you think of the book before we get to Alan? Uh, I thought it was sensational, Alan. Congratulations. Uh, you know, I I, I I feel like it's been a little bit um, between the excerpt and, and the way it's it's presented. And I don't fault the marketing people because I understand uh, how you want to reach people. But I think I th- this is just a great business book. And it's one that people will read for, for years to come as a business case study. So I don't know if that's a compliment, but I think it is. Um, <laughs> It's that it, it functions on so many levels, and I appreciate the kind words because you guys are definitely discerning readers, and you're you're close to this whole story. So if 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 it, if it kept you turning pages, that that's tough to do. You know, we're all. It's like when we all watch Full Swing, uh, we have certain reaction to it because we're too close to it. But, but that the the average person loved that show, and we, we all probably had our quibbles. So it, if you can, if you can, if the people in the industry are. If you get the staff approval from them, that's hard to do. So I appreciate that. Just how difficult was the book to report? I mean, there's a lot of reporting in it. It must, I mean, it seems like a monumental job. Thank you. Yeah, it it was a, quite a challenge because you know everyone was suing everyone, right? Like right off the bat, the um, the live guys sued the PJ Tour for antitrust. The PJ Tour countersued Live for tortious interference and breach of contract and a bunch of other things. Patrick Reed was suing everybody on the golf beat except for the three of us, which. We're probably not doing our jobs well enough. And then, um, you know, Jack Nicholas sued himself. Like it just, it was getting nutty. And, um, so yeah, the reporting was, was a monumental challenge. And the nice thing about a book and having a little, uh, the time horizon is I kept going back to people and there were a lot of key sources who turned me down numerous times until I finally got them. And that was partly because as I talked to more people, I got closer and closer to the real story and they acknowledged that. And I'd go, you know, a, a few people, I said, you know, you told me this, but I just know that's not true. I saw the contract. I I've got the dates. I've got the numbers like, okay, well now you, you know, too much. So now I'll be honest with you. You know, it was like, oh. it was a little disenchanting. Um, but <laughs> that's how it played out over and over that people don't want to talk, but then when they realized what I knew, they felt compelled to weigh in. So it, it was just going back to people and over and over before they finally cracked really. Uh, it struck me as like an equal opportunities book in a way that uh, reading through it, when you can read, you can read all the golf journals on, on the, across the landscape, and you can generally tell what which quotes and quotes side they're on. I've got the sense 
that at some point in the in the book or in the in the, in the people on both sides kind of realised that you you kind of really were kind of down the line. I mean, did that? I mean, were you and and did that help? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were only a few people who on the beat who were traveling on two passports and going between both tours. You know, Bob Herrig was out there, Alex Maselli, um, Adam Woodward a little bit, but it was there were not a lot of us who were covering both tours, and so. And people knew this book was coming and that on some level it was going to be kind of the definitive story that people were going to go back and look at. And so they they did. There was a lot of spinning. Everyone at some point, they were reluctant. And then they're like, oh, this is happening. And they saw my reporting in real time because I was writing stuff for firepitcollective.com as I went. And the live people especially, I think, realized that I was going to treat them fairly and and take them seriously because so many people so many fans and so many reporters honestly were have been so dismissive and just they've just ridiculed them without ever actually setting foot on at any of the events and once they realized that I was, I was going to give them a, a fair hearing um people started talking to me more so yeah that i didn't want to impose my views on the reader i didn't want to like legislate to to the readers like okay this is the good guy and this is the bad guy and and these people are right and they're wrong because it's much more nuanced and complex than that so i did try and my idea of balance is to be critical of both sides, but also when they got something right, I would I would point that out as well. So I did I did try and 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 kind of walk that line, which was challenging. And uh, but I think that served the the book well because if I if it was just a pro live or a pro tour book, yeah, you would lose so many readers right right off the jump. One thing, uh, Alan, that that is a recurring theme of the book uh, is vindictiveness, and I'm curious to to hear your thoughts now having finished the book and and maybe had some time to reflect or doing all these interviews um what is driving so many of these people in golf who have it uh so good and and really a lot of the people in the moment are beneficiaries of tiger woods and yet there's just this um and on the course, they're buddy buddies. They look the other way when somebody's cheating and there's all this bro stuff. But then <laughs> off the golf course, we just there's just this constant theme. And obviously, Greg Norman's on another level. But I think we could see it with Saudi Arabia. We could see it with the tour. Certainly, uh, you and I can attest to some of the stuff they've done. Um, where's this coming from? What, what, what do you make of it? Uh, it's a lot of unhappy people. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what? They, they should be so happy. The money's pouring in and they get no ratings i mean they're they're, it's a miracle what they're doing yeah um and the players live in 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 these bubbles as you guys know and they're they're surrounded by enablers and it just creates this weird dynamic but i mean it's funny like this this global revenge tour that roy mcelroy went on against greg norman and made it intensely personal and when you you laid out in the book it all starts because of you know a pithy text exchange and roy's like okay that's it i'm going to devote my life to burying this guy it's like really if i'm roy mcelroy i've got that golf swing and i've got 100 millions of dollars to make i don't care what greg norman says does text like i wouldn't even notice him but it just gives you some insight into and it's not just golfers. I mean, like, you know, my, Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame induction speech when he went through all his petty grievances going back 40 years, like plenty of athletes, you know, the Tom Brady's like they find these little things to fuel them. So golfers are not, are not unique, but it is it is funny, like on some level, like just the bitchiness. And it, it I've said forever that, that the tour is, is you know, private. it's like high school with private jets. 
live is is like boarding school with you know private jets like it's just they're just these weird little insular worlds that are completely divorced from reality and live especially so it it, it does give you some insight into the players for sure because on the pj tour they're playing for eight million dollar purses and now they're playing for 20 million dollars and uh everyone's more unhappy than they've ever been it's like oh, it's just kind of, it's interesting yeah, just to follow up on your point, there's a great um, quote in the book, um, lots of great quotes, and this one's on the record, uh, the Claude Harmon quote talking about Brooks Kepka saying that uh, Brooks is a Super Bowl winning quarterback. And I'm reading that, I'm going, well, <laughs> are you kidding? He plays in a niche sport. I mean, if he walked down any main street, uh, you, you know, he wouldn't be recognised except by golf nerds. Uh, they do seem to have an incredible sense of self. Uh, an inflated sense of where they kind of stand in the, in the golf firmament. It's a great point. Never played for more money and never been more unhappy and bitchier. It's uh, the sense of entitlement is quite stunning. Yeah. And, you know, live exaggerated because it's a basically a player run organization on a lot of levels. And these guys have been coddled and empowered in ways they never, they never were on the PGA tour. And, especially in 2022 sort of the beta test year when they were just trying to build the airplane while they were flying like whatever the guys wanted you know there's yeah. there's a story about you know Liv was providing ha private housing for players and um you know Paulina walks into this giant mansion it's like it's not nice enough and like okay fine we'll get you another one you know it was just like whatever they wanted that started to get dialed back at the end of the year when they they looked at the balance sheet and they were 190 million dollars over their projected budget because the answer to everything had just been yes and so it was it was like a spoiled child who goes to stay with their grandparents and then and they are having you know ice cream for breakfast and uh, it's just like it went totally off the rails so uh there's that sense of entitlement exists on the tour and on live the volume got turned all the way up the uh, some again some great reporting on how the how that has changed in, in the new season compared to the first season you yeah. you know how it's slightly been dialed back and how the money's you know, liver actually, the bean counters have suddenly arrived. And again, great report and won't give it away, but people should go and uh, read it in the book. The other part of great, I want to come on to kind of more general themes in a minute, but the other uh, uh, great report is, uh, is who got what? I mean, definitive, who got what money? The one that uh, I wonder if you could be talking about general bitchiness. Uh, Harold Vardner gets 27 million plus 3 million for his foundation. Ian Poulter and Lee Westwood get 10 million. I mean, uh, did that cause it? Do you have you any idea if that cause that kind of stuff causes any friction out, out there? Yeah, of course. I mean, and these these numbers are not widely known, so um, it, it would it was a quite a process to get to get them locked down and and confirmed. But yeah, I mean, in, in the case of Westwood Poulter, they they were in early, and the when if you committed to live at a certain point say before the Phil Mickelson quotes came out, um, the market changed because they were, they had already, they were already set to launch. They had to launch, you know, they, they'd made it public shortly thereafter. And basically the reputation of his excellency was on the line and his very demanding boss, you know, MBS. And so the market really spiked after Liv announced his schedule, but before they announced any players, there was that period where it was like, okay, this is happening. We're committed. We don't have anyone lined up except for a handful of, you know, early ad adapters. And so, yeah, if, if you, if you went in early, like, like Westwood and Poulter, the market changed very quickly, but the contracts were already done. So at the same time, 
they're still playing for $25 million, you know, every time they, they, they rock up plus the bonuses, like, and now they're, they've got, you know, in the case of, of Westwood and Poulter, they're, they're tri-captains of the Majestics and the Majestics <laughs> have done a pretty good job signing up corporate sponsors. And so they're, they, ha- they, there's, there's ways that they're, they're also cashing in beyond just the initial signing bonus, but yeah, when you signed and the circumstances around it, and even Harold Varner, you know, he, I was told that he had been talking to live and they'd offered him a very modest deal. And then he, he goes over to the Saudi international makes like a hundred foot Eagle putt on the last hole to win the tournament, you know, great moments. All, all the top golf Saudi people are there. He's a very charming guy. He, and he was the life of the party afterwards. And they just fell in love with it. Like, we got to get this guy. And, and, you know, his, he gave him, I mean, I, I say in the book, it's one of the most lucrative putts in golf history because his deal, you know, more than quadrupled after that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it was very much about timing and, and market forces on, on some of these contracts. There's a lesson for everybody. If you be a bit more polite, Jeff, uh, you might get triple, quadruple your money for this podcast and, and be, be nice to people. It seems like, like, like Harold here at, <laughs> There, there are so many. Uh, uh, there are so many uh, characters in the book. Obviously, Greg Norman and you know, all the Saudi guys, MBS. I guess the two main guys are, are, are Yasser Al Rumian, and uh, on the live side and uh, on the PGA Tour side, Jay Monahan. You, you talk right about in the book how Jay's uh, internal nickname is Jay Hockey. This kind of mean, kind of bad-tempered guy who kind of. I don't want to call him a corporate bully. That's definitely not what you say. Or, but there's a bit of a you know curmudgeonly aspect to him, which is really not what his public image is. Um, my question is: is good leader or bad leader? Because I looked at from the inside, uh, certainly in this uh, episode, he's, his leadership to me has been completely disastrous. I, I wonder how you would see it. Yeah, you know, Mon- Monahan was kind of going to be this caretaker commissioner, right? Like. Fincham was the visionary and he, he did the world golf championships an idea he stole from Greg Norman, as a lot of people know, um, he got golf into the Olympics. He, he created these feeder tours around the world. Um, you know, Fincham was the big idea guy and they handed the keys to Monan and said, don't screw it up. Basically you got all these young stars, tiger and Phil are still around. And, and, you know, for three years, he just kind of chugged along very unimaginative leader, but as you say, has a nice personal front-facing personality and the players like him where, you know, Finchin was this very remote kind of like school principal vibe. Monahan was more like a big brother and he really did, um, he really did endear himself to his players. And then COVID hit and he was, I would say he was masterful in guiding the tour through that. And then the PGL threat came to a boil, uh, the P- Premier Golf League, which is a precursor to live in a lot of ways. And, Monahan very effectively killed the PGL. So, you know, at that point, you'd have to give him very high marks as commissioner. But the problem was he tried to run the same playbook from that he used to to destroy the PGL against the Saudis, which was just completely stonewall them, no communication, no public acknowledgement, and and just try and keep them out of the ecosystem, to use one of his terms. And what he really failed to fundamentally understand is these guys had a lot more resolve. And they certainly had a lot more money and that they were, they were going to push all their chips into the, the, the middle of the table. And, you know, I think one of sort of the dramatic high points of the book is in, in the spring of 2021, the, the number two guy uh, from the Saudis at that point, his name is Majed Al-Saror sends, 
sends Monahan this letter and says, we want to partner with the tour. We want to invest in the tour. We want to have a meeting and talk about all these possibilities. And that was the moment of truth for, for Monahan of his leadership, of his worldview, uh, of his strategic thinking. And he failed that test, you know, instead of bringing these guys on board, co-opting them, taking their money, neutralizing the threat, he de- he went in this board meeting and declared war and said, you know, we don't negotiate with people who are trying to destroy the PGA tour. And that, that was, that was hockey J in action. You know, it was like, he was trying to muck a, a puck out of the corner there and he started throwing elbows and it, 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 it called for diplomacy um, instead. And he, he, he did not rise to that moment. And he, you know, his, his diffidence, like that's touched off this whole era of acrimony. And, um, he may yet salvage the deal and he's now negotiating with those very same people. And three years later, he may get their money and he may be able to put the game back together in some fashion, but it will have come at an extremely high cost to the tour, uh, to the, the reputations of a lot of players who used to be favorites on tour and obviously Jay Monahan the most. I mean, his, his whole legacy has been, has been crushed because of the way he, you know, this about face and the secrecy. And um, so I think he was a good leader until he turned into a bad leader, but it was kind of the same mentality, uh, that stubbornness and that, that, um, that tenacity that got him through COVID got him through the PGL, but that's what hurt him against the, when it came to the Saudi threat. So, uh, it's certainly been, you know, J- Jeff talked earlier about business school, like, um, the Monaghan leadership is, is something that's going to be Monday morning quarterback for a very long time. And I, I think rightly so the guy gets paid $15 million a year to protect the interest of the tour and to be thinking about all these big picture issues. And at, at the critical moment he failed. You say Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking, but it's, I haven't come across anybody who said uh, who could offer an explanation or, or a motivation for why uh, Monaghan and spe- I mean uh, Ed Herlihy is another one. I mean he, he was the one that sat in the meeting with I think it was Phil and uh, I don't know Silver Lake or whoever it was, yeah. and just basically said anything that's not 100 percent owned by the PGA Tour we, we view as as hostile. I, I mean, is there? Do you have any sense of what was their motivation or what was their thinking? Yeah, it, it's just the tour has always been kind of protectionist, right? And they've grudgingly and let the world in when it suited their their purposes. But, you know, the World Golf Championships were played in Akron and Tucson. You know, they weren't very worldly. And um, the, it's just like they just they just had a very binary worldview. It's just us. It, you're with us or you're against us. And. It, it was just small thinking, you know, honestly, I obviously the, the Saudi money comes with complications. We were living through that now. I mean, it's certainly okay if they had done the due diligence and said, ultimately, this is not a good investment for us as a, as an, as an organization that's defensible. Uh, Jeff and I were debating before we, you came on, we were debating what was Jay's biggest uh, mistake. Jeff's got a, uh, Jeff, what was it? What was, what did you think his bigger mistake was Jeff? Yeah, it's Alan has it late in the book, and it was in a an interview where he gave a comment. And he, he said to take a competitor off the board was the impetus for this this uh, whatever they're calling it. Um, it just seemed, and that uh, that at least feeds the antitrust thing, though. I, I guess, uh, I, but but Alan, I, I guess I would defend Jay in one sense because the other element uh, to the finish of the book, and you did a beautiful job concluding it because. 
it's not easy to do with this story being so fluid uh, as you're finishing the book. But but the one thing you kind of pull together at the end, uh, at least I sensed, is that they have legitimized Saudi Arabia now, no matter what happens in this negotiation. So yeah. if they break up and go their own separate ways and are just happy they got rid of the lawsuit, do you do you sense that they've opened the floodgates now for more players to go or for more people to um, to take their money and do business with them? Is that is that a possibility now as sort of a a, um, a remnant of this framework agreement debacle? Yeah, of course, because you know Patrick Cantley turned down seventy five million dollars, and that number wasn't known until it was in the book. That's part of why he's so salty, and. It was, you know, Jay very effectively demonized the Saudis. You know, he made it a moralistic question. Have you ever right. had to apologize for being a PJ Tour member? Right. And the players bought into that. And now to turn around and say, you know what? We like these guys. We have shared values. Their money's clean. Like, it's all good. Like, um, if you're Patrick Cantlay, you're like, really? Because you made me turn down $75 million. If, if that comes back around again, I think a lot of these players are, are more inclined to say yes, because their leaders have essentially vetted the Saudis and said, you know what? They're good people. They weren't involved in any of that other stuff. Like they're our friends. Like we smoke cigars together. We play golf. Like, and so if, if, if the leadership's okay with the money, why would a mere player turn it down? Um, it does the, you know, the, the world ranking, the golf establishment, you know, closing ranks yet again, that's a complicating factor because you know, the, the top guys on live are all exempt into the majors, whether it's Brooks, right. Bryson, Phil, DJ, like Cam Smith, they don't really care about the world ranking fight. They're, they're, they're irritated on a, on a, on a human level, but professionally they're not affected, but like, look at Taylor Gooch, you know, he, he wins three times. He wins essentially the, the FedEx cup of live this season long points race by shooting a closing 62 in Jetta. you know, afterwards he says, I think I'm one of the best players in the world. He, he he might be right, but if he doesn't get into the majors next year, how will we ever know? So if you're a guy like a good established mid-level player, but not a major championship winner, not someone who has these automatic exemptions, you, you have to be wondering what are my avenues into the majors if you care about that. And maybe you don't. Maybe that $75 million is all you care about. So um, I think there's going to be some some movement and there's going to be some, some signings here because – Again, the future is unknown. It is clear that this framework agreement is not going to be consummated in December. You know, right. they're going to extend it into next year. It's just too complex. There's too much going on here. And but so if if you're let's just say Patrick Cantley, depending on how the, it does get the deal gets done, those live signing bonuses may go away forever. This might be your last chance. So there is some pressure to get in now. You missed it the first time around. This is, could be your last chance ever to take that money. Um, so I think there, there is that pressure and you have the world ranking decision is not final forever. It's, no. it's the decision right now. Live can reapply. And it's ironic that, you know, the, the, the core argument for denying the petition was that there's not enough movement of players and it's right. a closed shot, but live guys are getting relegated. They're going to have this Q school in Abu Dhabi next in December, um, the players who finish 25th through 48th on their points list, uh, if they become essentially free agents, if nobody wants to sign them, they're out. They're going to the Asian tour. Like there could be 10 new players on live easily. That's 20 to 25% of, of the field. I mean, 
or uh, of the total number of players. If the tour has 150 or 200 guys, that'd be like bringing in, you know, say 50 new ones. Like that's kind of what happens. So I think that live has a, a rebuttal and maybe they will get points next year, but uh, that's going to be a a torturous process. So these guys have a lot, there's a lot of uncertainty flying around about when will they be able to cash in? What does the future look like? How are the points going to fall? So it's, there's some tough decisions being made right now, but um, I do think that they'll, so there'll be some more defections from the tour to live. It's just a question of who and and how many. What's what's the Saudis' motivation here? Do they do they actually see golf as something in the way that Dubai saw golf maybe 30, 25, 30 years ago, or is it just that they are uh, voracious uh, VC people who see the, who see the PGA Tour as an asset that is currently underexploited? It's all of it. That That's what's so interesting. Like on a very basic level, and there's a great quote from Keith Pelley of the European Tour. He's like, you know, this is all because of Yasir, because he's a, a golf tragic. And if he was, if he loved volleyball, they'd be building volleyball arenas and hosting volleyball world championships and creating a volleyball super league. Like, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm Taylor Gooch, I am really happy that Yasir loves golf because I'm, I made 40, $50 million because this guy is, is a golf nut and he just wants to be close to the game. And I've, I've said this before, like you've never seen anyone happier than his excellency at these live events. It's like fantasy camp for him. He plays in the pro-am and he, and he plays a few holes with Phil and he gets a chipping lesson and he jumps in his cart. And then he goes and plays a few holes with Cam Smith. He gets a putting lesson and then he jumps in his cart and he goes and plays a few holes with Bryson and they talk about, you know, whatever they talk about because they're both kind of nerdy. And then he, he goes and he plays a few holes with Dustin and, he, you know, he gets to work on his long irons. Like he is he is just having the time of his life. He hosts a big party every Tuesday night at these events where they, they drink all this expensive wine with the players. And like on a very human level, he just loves golf and he's he's having a great time. But certainly a lot of this is it, it's a way to get a seat at the table proverbially not just in golf but in the western world in in the the business stratosphere because the elemental truth of live came out in that that senate appendix when you know it was kind of i called it soft core fantasy it was like these advisors to the uh, the piff like the best of both worlds was the name of this presentation if this merger goes through and this got a lot of play you know you're getting a membership with the rna and at, at augusta national but and I say this in the book, if he were to accomplish that, he would have penetrated Western society in a way that no Saudi prince or king and ambassador ever has or ever could, because those are the inner sanctum, not just of golf, but of just the Western world. I mean, it's CEOs, it's thought leaders, it's tastemakers. It's, it's, you know, if you can get, if you can go to the Jamboree at Augusta National and you're wearing one of those coats, like the amount of influence and power that is now um, you're, you're in that orbit. You're, you've been vetted and accepted. Like there's nothing like it in the world. And so, uh, it's, it's also a chance, you know, if you get, if you consummate this deal with the tour, now you have access to, you know, 48 title sponsors. These are big multinational corporations and, you know, everything in Saudi Arabia is built around this vision 2030, which is MBS's, you know, he staked his entire reign on reshaping the Saudi economy and its culture. And so two of the pillars are are tourism and sport. And, you know, golf marries that in a very unique way. Because, I mean, you mentioned Dubai, Lawrence. Like, 
I've been to Dubai. It's just a flat, dusty city. There's no memorable golf terrain whatsoever. And yet golf has become an important part of the story of Dubai. I mean, Saudi Arabia has 1,500 miles of coastline and incredible mountain ranges. Like you could build um, some phenomenal rustic canyons out there. Like there's, it cries out for some great golf courses. And in a lot of the Brits and and certainly a lot of the, a lot of the money in the middle East goes to Dubai in the wintertime to play golf. And, um, if you could pick off all those, all those travelers and get them to come to Saudi Arabia, you've like opened up a huge sector of the economy and that more than justifies the investment in live golf. And then, you know, you can leverage the live star power. Like there's this huge development going in outside Riyadh It's being called, it's being marketed as the Beverly Hills of Riyadh. And one of the selling points is a Greg Norman golf course, which, you know, is an eye roll to, to Jeff and anyone else who cares about golf course architecture, but it is a selling point. Norman's become even more of a star and he's a celebrity over there now. So live golf is about a, a lot more than just these 14 tournaments. And there's a lot of ways for the, for the Saudis to get an ROI, not just in pure dollars, but reputationally sports washing deal making, like you name it. Um, so that's why it's so fascinating. It exists on many different levels, but and I said as long as Yasir Al Rumayim remains in his positions, because he is certainly the most powerful person in the world. He's not a head of state because not only does he he sit on top of the seven hundred billion dollar war chest of the PIF, he's also the chairman of Aramco, the state right. oil company, which is the world's most profitable company. Like he, um, his that's the ultimate double threat, and so. As long as he's in those positions, live golf can endure forever because it's his baby and he loves it. And the players who bought into his vision and validated it, he feels a tremendous loyalty to. So um, as long as Yashir does not get sideways with MBS, I think that golf is going to remain very important in Saudi Arabia. Just to just to piggyback off of, of Yasir, Alan, in your time in the game, because Lawrence and I were discussing this yesterday, I have, and, 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 you know, my late mother would be very mad, but I'm going to use Jock Sniffer again. I, this, this world, like this group that's congregating now to possibly come in and give money to the tour and private equity. Um, I mean, we've always seen people with money attracted to golfers. They play pro-ams. They love to hit balls next to them on the range at the AT&T, but it feels like it's gone to another level of, of a really bizarre, obsession almost with these guys who just happen to be the group of good players at the moment. But uh, I feel like that's feeding some of the delusional thinking, both amongst players, but also this, the business community. Do you, do you see that, that there, it's not just Yasir that there's, there are more of these guys than ever. And what do you, what do you make of all that? Yeah. I think there's so much wealth among the 1%, like having your own jets, not a big deal anymore. Um, having uh, a house in, on the coastline at Pebble Beach is not a big deal. What can I have that you can't, you know? Mm. And professional sports has become one of the ultimate status markers. And, you know, there's only so many NFL teams to go around. There's only, you know, like it's the the competition to buy these franchises has never been more fierce. And now you have, you know, you have the Saudis bidding for EPL teams and you have these other Gulf states like, and so that's part of the live model is like they, what they are, the only way they're going to make the money back, their whole business model is built on selling the, the franchises. Right. And if you buy that franchise, you get to play in all the proams. 
you get to party on the yacht with Dustin and Paulina. You get to go to all the dinners. Like you're buying the access, you know, this experiential thing. And like I've told this story. My my um, my cousin was a season ticket holder for the Dodgers. He still is going back to the eighties. And he would go to Vero Beach and pay like fifteen thousand dollars to go to Dodgers fantasy yeah, camp. Yeah, fantasy camp. Yeah. And he would take grounders next to you know broken down old Steve Garvey. And he loved it. <laughs> yeah. and if you buy one of these live franchises, it's the ultimate fantasy camp. Now you yeah. are part of the competition. You're 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 like setting strategy for these guys. Hey, I think you know maybe on that par five you should you should lay up. You know, like you're you're, you're telling us over dinner and you're picking the team uniforms and you're you're just you're part of the show and. I think these guys just they just all want to be part of the show. And yeah. because even like the private equity money that that is trying to buy into the tour, like what is their return? Like how are they gonna yeah, get how are they I gonna know. make a profit? What are you getting? What are you getting? <laughs> like those guys are sharks. They all like you said, Lawrence, they're just in it for the money, but I don't see how you're gonna get your billions of dollars back. I mean, I guess you could drastically, you know, with this money, you could reinvest in in the tour product and maybe you could do all kinds of really cool things with the telecast and technology and maybe you could start charging people more like and create revenue streams there because i think we'd all pay more money just to get a decent product to watch um i don't know i don't i don't know where the money is but um on some level like you're saying jeff these guys don't care one other thing uh alan um McElroy is a is a is a is another big character in the book. I, I just wanted to ask one question: How do you think McElroy is now seen by his peers? I mean, you spoke earlier; he's hated on the live side of things. But I wonder just how popular is he uh, amongst his PGA Tour peers? I mean, I get the sense that they're a lot of them are kind of rolling their eyes these days. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the live guys have been. He's really gotten under skin because again. The, the characters in this book are really complex. Like there's, they defy categorization of good guys, bad guys. Like on, on some level, Rory, you know, he was this white knight of the PGA tour and he was, he was this diplomat and he was out there fighting this fight. And, but he also poisoned the whole discourse because he made it intensely personal. Like he was a huge troll from the beginning. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and he loved stirring it up. So celebrating him as a statesman doesn't quite track. And um, I think the guys on the tour appreciate that Rory put it all on the line for them. And, um, you know, they could see the anguish that, that, that was visited upon him when, when, when the money guys sold them out there. Yep. But I, I think that, you know, also, but Rory's on the board and he, he's close to Jimmy Dunn. Like he, it feels like he should have been in the room and he should have known what was happening. And he, he should have been a voice for the players. And it was completely, he was completely absent in the process. It's not entirely his fault. You know, they were working hard to keep it a secret, but again, he has a fiduciary duty as a member of the board to protect the interests of all of his colleagues. And he, he was kind of asleep at the wheel there. So I think probably there's a little unhappiness amongst his colleagues, but again, on, on a fundamental level, the job of the commissioner is to get the players paid. Monaghan has done that. And Rory's has been a part of it too. Like you know, with this, this TGL, which to me sounds like a cheesy idea, but he's getting his colleagues paid, you know, there. Um, and so I think that I, I don't think anyone's too mad at, at Rory. Okay. I mean, uh, uh, I think, 
again, it's one talking about themes that run through the book. It's like the idealists, when they meet the the corporate sharks and the money guys, they get chewed up and spit out. And, you know, happened to Andy Gardner. He was the idealist behind the PGL, but um, he got outmaneuvered and, and marginalized. Happened to Rory. You could even say it happened to Greg Norman in 94. Like he had this idea for the world tour and uh, it was from his own life experience, you know, coming from the middle of nowhere and becoming this global figure and having to fight against the protectionist policies of the PGA tour. And he really believed the game should be global. And Tim Fincham came in and humiliated him and stole his idea and turned Norman into a pariah. Now, Norman is also a complicated guy and he's, he's created a lot of his own problems, but um, it's when, when these, when these big thinkers and these, these idealists come into contact with these, these boardroom warriors, like they have no chance like that. That's someone that runs through this whole book. I don't know if you saw, saw Alan did see Greg had his dog with him everywhere he went down yeah. at Doral. <laughs> yeah, probably, everywhere. probably a crisis management consultant <laughs> came up with that. But I mean, it was just like when I was at Mayakoba this year, you know, Norman was riding around on a bike, which people do throughout that whole resort. And, but that's how he's getting around the golf course. I thought it was cute. And I just took a picture of him. Oh boy. And put it on social media <laughs> and everyone was like, Oh, this, this is a clown show. You know, I was like, yeah. Oh, He's not the only one, right? I was riding a bike, getting around too, but it's like, I like dogs. I think it's kind of cute to have your yeah. dog. But again, if Norman does it, he's like, oh, this whole thing's a joke. It's a circus. Like, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't put off by the dog, but it is just usually a cute Labrador that doesn't instill so much hatred, but <laughs> it tells you how polarizing Norman is. Like yeah. <laughs> he shows up with his dog and it becomes a thing. Uh, you sum up the book. I don't want to get, I want people to read the book cause it's, it's a terrific read, but, but what's the best case scenario outcome in all this? People have said, yeah, how can you put the book out now? We don't know how the story ends, but we really do. I mean, either the framework agreement goes through as is it blows up entirely. Or what I think the most likely outcome, this, this new third rail possibility is these, this, this other money comes in, whether it's New York private equity, Silicon Valley VCs or even Hollywood money, you know, Ari Emanuel from Endeavor has been sniffing right. around the game for a long time. And the tour wants $2 billion. That's the, that's their benchmark of outside investment. And so mm -hmm. if you take a million from the Saudis, you take a million from some other U S based firm, then they can, they can sell that as, Hey, yeah, we we're doing business with the Saudis, but they're just another minority investor. Their, their influence and their equity has been diluted. Yeah. Comes an easier sell to the players, the fans, and and to the con to Congress and the Department of Justice, who are scrutinizing this heavily. That is definitely the best case scenario for the tour. Now, for the PIF and for Yasir, all of a sudden they're being marginalized a little yep. bit and they're being diminished. And that's not how those guys roll. Like they want to have a dominant position in any deal. And so, mm. this is why the negotiations have gotten so complex. And if the, the tour can get that $2 billion without the PIF. That's very clear. And that's something they're considering strongly because then, you know, they, as Lawrence noted earlier, that the lawsuits have been dismissed with prejudice. They can never be refiled. That was a huge win for the tour. They get the $2 billion to reinvest in their product from, from Wall Street, from Silicon Valley. That's a big win also. And the tours modernized. They've reshaped their entire structure. Like these are all good things. They can, they can pay the players what they promised them. You know, because Jay Monahan wrote a lot of checks that he can't cash. Um, but but the big problem with that is then the Saudis and, and Liv goes back to being a fierce competitor and they still have the checkbook and now they're pissed off. And then you can create this 
this huge bidding war where, um, you know, a lot of players could leave, but I've detected like a little swagger from, from the folks in Ponte Vedra beats as they've, as all this investment has been put on the table by U S firms, they've realized they don't really need the Saudis. And on some level live golf has taken its best shot already. Like, and they still have failed to really capture a large market share of golf fans. The TV ratings are tiny. They've they've gotten some sponsorship, but it's very small time. There's no no blue chip companies have come in big. And I think the tours realizing, you know what? If we go back to this the old way where it's 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 product against product, to use Monahan's term, we're gonna be okay as long as we have Tiger and Rory and Jordan and John Rahm and maybe Justin Thomas and Scotty Scheffler. There we can put them in there. They can lose the Cantleys and kind of this next tier of players and just replace them with, you know, uh, a Gordon Sargent and um, a Ludwig Aubert. And there's always more players coming up. And the tour now with its, they've 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 gone to war at the grassroots level with PGA Tour U, and they're they're creating these pathways for young players. And um, I think the tour is realizing like maybe now that we've extinguished the lawsuits, maybe we're okay. Um, so. That's why this framework agreement has bogged down because um, the the power dynamics are shifting and the decision making is changing in real time. The uh, the Saudis wanted to, uh, a bit, were prepared to give a billion for forty five percent. Yasser is chairman, a first right of refusal. They're not going to give a billion dollars for uh, uh, for none of that. Uh, so I mean, you can come back on when the paperback comes out, Alan. Uh, the future of the PG tour will not will not include the Saudis. I, I, we only put uh, at least five dollars on that. Here, um, just before you go, Alan, another character in the book is you. Justin Thomas was having a go, uh, but I'm fed up without. I can't remember the exact quote. I He's can't, not I'm growing the game. That. That's the important takeaway. <laughs> well, that's, 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 that's your issue, Shipnut. Uh, and uh, Brooks Kepka uh, chimed in, basically thumbs up, Justin. However, there's a great quote from Kepka in the book, which I noted that Kepka didn't uh, deny. So uh, I think that's the main thing I took out of that. Um, but but why do you think, Alan, and this is a kind of, I mean, I have long admired you as a journalist, but this is a, a recurring theme throughout your career that you're uh, not popular. Uh, I mean, the place, you know, I can, go, I can go all the way back to Ernie Els trying to knock your head off in 2004 or something. <laughs> Colt Noss is another one. Rich Beam the subject or one of the characters in your book, Bud Sweat and Tease. What's going on? What's wrong with you, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of a badge of honor if the players are mad all the time because, the you know, Justin's primary critique was, he said, you know, I'm sick of Alan Shipnuck not writing more positive things about the game. It's like, it's such an eye roll. We're in the middle of the most contentious period yeah. in the history of the PGA Tour. Like, it is not my job to write press releases about you know these are perfect golfing gentlemen like they they the players want control and they want they want their narrative that's and social media exaggerate that because they do have total control and they can just present what they want to present an independent reporter and i've always enjoyed that independence i'm gonna just lay it out there in an honest way and sometimes they hate that because it's counter to their own interests and um I mean, you guys have been out there. You know, there's certain reporters on the beat, and I, reporters is even a funny term. There, there's just certain people on the golf beat who, 
the most important thing to them is getting dapped up by Justin Thomas when they go out on the driving range Yeah, and preserving that relationship and being seen as a good guy is like fundamental to how they do their job. I don't care if Justin Thomas is mad at me. Like uh, I really don't like, I'm going to, I'm going to just, I'm just going to, the relationship I care about is with the readers and I'm going to tell them what's really happening. And that was kind of the mandate on this book because it all happened in secret. And so I had to just tell this story honestly for the fans deserve that other stakeholders in the game. And there's some messiness there. There's some, some bitterness, there's some anger, there's some betrayal. It's all in the pages of this book. And so there are, there's spiciness and there's name calling. And that's what Justin was responding to. It was the, you know, when the excerpt dropped and it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't create this situation. I'm just cataloging it. Like I'm just recording it for posterity. And um, yeah, this, the game has suffered a little bit, you know, the naked greed of the players has been laid bare, the ugliness of some of this it's out there. And maybe that doesn't grow the game, but like, it was interesting because Justin, he wrote, I'm sick and tired of Alan Shipnuck making money. And like, oh, yeah, like that, these players have become so voracious. Like Justin will make more money finishing dead last in a no cut, elevated event which only exists <laughs> because of live golf that yeah. i'm going to make on this book but it's like they want to have every dollar and they want to have all the control and i you know i'm sorry that i i write books for a living and i do want to put my kids through college like i'm not like this is what i do but i'm the bad guy because i'm like making a little a few crumbs compared to this this cornucopia that he's enjoying like i thought that tweet said a lot more about justin than, than me honestly well, I, I think you don't have to justify yourself or your your relatives to anyone. Uh, but but this is a constant theme. I don't trust Shipnock. Uh, you know, Colt I don't trust Shipnock. Rich Beam. I don't trust. I mean, is 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 are they all wrong? I don't. I don't even know what Colt's talking about. He, I've never really written about him. I I interviewed him once for an Anthony Kim story, and you know, I quoted him fairly and accurately, and I heard he was upset, but. It's like if if you don't want something to get put out there, then don't don't tell me. You know, like I I don't know what his deal is, honestly. You know, Beam was the same deal. Like I wrote I wrote a book about his life, which had some messiness. And you know, he told me he's like I remember one time he said, "Hey man, I don't." Because he had this girlfriend at the Kemper Open, uh, and she was there for everything. And then they broke up, and he's like, "You know, I wish you wouldn't. I wish you wouldn't talk to her because you know we, we broke up." And I said she was a witness to all this stuff. Like she's a character in the book. I have to talk to her. And then he was like really okay. upset about that. It's like, again, like I, I you, my fidelity is to the story and the players want that control, but I, I can't give them that. I, I can't, they, I'm not going to let them tell me how to do my job. So I don't think it's an issue of trust. I think it's an issue of control and I just won't grant that to them. And, you know, even like, you know, when Tiger Woods came out on the, on tour, he was a playing editor for Golf Digest. And so he had this business relationship with Golf Digest, which also at that time had a weekly golf world. And Tiger could exert that control and that influence. And at Sports Illustrated, we didn't we didn't grant him that. And so that relationship's always been complicated. Um, um, so I don't know. I think I, I came up in a different era. Like my editors at SI were these crusty, hard-bitten newspaper guys. And they always felt like 
the the players and it goes goes back to almost famous you know that the movie the the cameron crow and that lester bangs character like these guys are not your friend like you're there to do a job don't get sucked into like the friendship vibe and so i that's how i've done my job and you know it's probably you know if michael bamberger he does his job a little differently like he goes to range and he's got he's got friends out there a lot of you know, he's just a, a warmer, more gentle personality and it served him well. Like he's, you know, he's, he gets invited to more dinners than I do with the players and that's great. And he, he's still a hard nosed reporter, but he, he's more effective at kind of that relationship building. I don't really care about the relationships long-term. Like I care about the story in the moment. And I just always felt like if someone tells me something good, I'm going to use it and they might be upset about it, but my fidelity is as is to the, the the reader, the listener, and to tell the story completely and honestly. And I guess the the, Mich- the friendship you had with Mickelson f- f- falls into that category then, because I, I mean I haven't spoken to any of your peers who Mickelson clearly didn't see off the record before the the conversation you had with them. But as I mean, I guess your antenna were were sparkling within five you know, within five or ten seconds of when he started talking. Uh, Certainly would have occurred to me uh, to say at the end, "Hey, Philip, are you are you sure about this stuff? Because this is this is fucking crazy, mate. Uh, this is going to ruin your life." <laughs> um, I mean, you've been you've been friends with Mickelson, or you've been a good source for him, not friends. Let's put it and his wife for for twenty years. Um, I just wondered, would it not occur to you to, to do that, or is it is your are you completely about the story again? You don't have to justify yourself to anybody it's just a question you know i've been wondering yeah i mean i wouldn't say phil and i were ever friends like there are reporters he's played golf with and he's had a lot of long dinners with various reporters i i've never did any of that stuff with him like he did have friends among the reporters i wasn't one of them like yeah we always had kind of a, a good professional relationship but sometimes not even it was edgy then it was it was repaired but um we definitely weren't friends i mean he was a, a pretty good source at times um yeah, I mean, Phil is a very cagey operator and he's manipulated the media for decades and he's good at it. And I went to him three times face to face and said, I want to interview him for my book. And he parried and he went back and forth. Ultimately, he declined because he said he didn't want it to be an authorized biography. I said, well, there's kind of a middle ground there. We don't have to bill it either way, but plenty of people do interviews for books and um and so that's how we left it. And then he reached out to me and he called me at that point. Anything he tells me is going straight in the book, unless we agree otherwise. And he never asked to go off the record. I never consented to it. And so yeah, that's clear. like, like what you're saying, I don't think it's my role to be a lifeguard and, and, you know, pull Phil back from, from the edge, from the edge of the pool. If he wants to jump in the deep end, I'm going to let him, you know, he knows what he's doing. He initiated the conversation and he had, he had things he wanted to tell me and he had things he wanted to get off his chest. And so I'm not there to put up guardrails. Like, you know, he, and if someone wants to say something, I'm going to let him say it. You know, I just don't think it's my role to be a governor on their emotions. And, you know, he was getting fired up and he was getting emotional in that phone call. And, and that's, that's part of how it goes. And people often say things in the moment they regret later and then they blame the reporter, but that's on them. You know, I, I, there's there's been a million times in my career where you know you're you're in a parking lot and you bump into someone a player and you're chatting and they'll be like hey did you hear that um you know 
uh, so-and-so got in a fist fight with his caddy in the parking lot. You're like, wow, that's amazing. I'd love to, I'd love to use that. Can I, can I quote you? And they'll be like, no, I don't want my name attached, but you know, you go talk to this person. They'll tell you, or they'll say you can have it, but don't use my name. And like that give and take is part of every reporter's job. And there are gray areas. Like when is it an interview? When are you just kind of schmoozing? But I would submit with Phil when I've gone to him over and over and asked for an interview for the book. And when he calls me and says, I want to talk, like there's no gray area there. That was, we didn't, we weren't next to each other at a urinal, just BSing. Like this, this was, this was always for the book. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I've done that a thousand times with people, you, you know, you're walking on the golf course and a wife tells you something and, and then it's like, oh, that's really good. Can I use that? And they're like, no, you can't like, okay, fine. You know, because there is that give and take that, that you have to protect people and you want them to be candid, but um, that was a different scenario. I mean, I, you know, I had, I had begged Phil for interviews and he knew what he was doing when he picked up the phone and he called me. So, um, okay. I, I, that's a different case, but yeah, you're right. There, there, there is an interpersonal aspect and it's, it's, you have to, you have to kind of figure that thing out in the moment. Um, but that was, that was very black and white for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, great. Good, good that you talked about it. Um, anything else, Jeff? Any other business? No, no. I just uh, would urge people to read the book. It's a great read. And uh, the, Alan will probably be teaching a business class. Uh, this will be the textbook. And the paperback <laughs> will have the, uh, the 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 thrilling conclusion that should come to a head sometime in the next couple of months. So thanks, Alan, it. for think, uh, your time. Oh, no, no. My pleasure. I don't, I don't think we're going to have a, a result in the next couple of months. I, I think it's no? going to be... I mean, because I was I was talking to a money guy in New York who's very involved in these negotiations, and I said, "Is this going to be done by December thirty first? He said, "No, it's not. There's just, it's a mess. There's there's too many there's too many egos. There's too many protagonists. There's too many Oof. scenarios." He's like, "This deal is an absolute mess." So, um, mm, yeah. I think you know it's going to be maybe it'll get done by the masters. I think the longer yeah. it goes on, and in some ways it helps live golf, it gives them more time to just bake yep. out their product, trying to attract corporate sponsorship, um, trying, you know, they're colonizing these new markets with Hong Kong and Korea in 24. And I think they're not in a hurry. Um, the tour, you know, they, they may feel like they may have the opposite view. The longer this goes on, the more our core guys are invested in what we're doing. And, and um, so I, I don't sense that there's any urgency. I think both sides want to see how things play out. But yes, when the paperback comes out next October, hopefully we'll have a resolution. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, anyway. we, we'll leave it at that. Alan Shipnock, author of Live and Let Die. I cannot, uh, Jeff's already said this piece, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It's uh, just a fantastic read. Congratulations, Alan. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Fun conversation with a couple OGs. So I appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you.